across the blue line. Leaves it. Kale McCarr winds, fires, score! Now Rubido, top of the near circle, pass far side, wide open net. What a save made by Philip Grubauer. Just outstanding stuff. I am Grubauer. And Zadorov oh. smash! <laughs> oh my goodness! Yep. What a bone-crushing hit by Nikita Zadorov. And Howard Luck has no idea what day it is, what time zone he's in, and he is slowly making his way towards the bench. Hello and welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. We're coming to you kind of an impromptu podcast here. We weren't meaning to podcast today, but I think after that 5-3 game one loss, there's definitely plenty to talk about. So um, I guess let's just start it off. Of course, I'm your host, JJ Jerez. With me to break this down today is Arif Dean. Um, you know, I'll start it off with just, we last podcasted two days ago, and this is kind of what I warned about, right? The way the Avalanche started this game. I mean, the physicality really caught them off guard, and the pace that came that they came with coming out of the gate kind of still felt like they were playing Arizona. So I'm not the type of person to say a toe-to-so, but a toe-to-so. Yeah, you were spot on. The exact thing you mentioned is exactly what happened. And the reason why I say that is because the Avalanche were not necessarily outplayed or not. Well, they were outplayed. They weren't necessarily outmatched or outskilled. You know, they can hang with this team. They simply were not ready. They said it. You said it beforehand. They said it after the game. Coach Bednar said it after the game. They were not ready. And one thing we talked about before the series was just the fact that their three stars, Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, Alex Radulov, hadn't really made much of an impact on the score sheet. Well, two goals from Radulov, one goal from Sagan. So the stars definitely played well there in game one. Meanwhile, the Avs played pretty terrible. What, what do you think played the bigger role in the, in the loss? The fact that Dallas was on point or the fact that the Avalanche were just slacking quite a bit? I'd call it about a 70-30 splint. Split. It was about 70% the Avalanche completely blowing it and shooting themselves in the foot, and 30% Dallas playing an exceptional game. Like we said, you know, before the last pod, is they were rolling. They scored seven goals in that game six against Calgary. They they were down three nothing. They had five goals the game before. Suddenly the Stars are scoring a lot of goals, and now that Radulov, Sagan, and Ben are scoring, it's coming from everywhere. So the Avalanche definitely have their work cut out for them, probably a lot more than we thought. But at the same time. They had some terrible turnovers yesterday. They just didn't seem like they were incohesive with each other. They didn't seem like they were communicating well. Something was off big time. And uh, it's certainly one of those things where you know this team is better. And that kind of makes you feel a little bit better about the fact that this isn't going to happen every game. This wasn't Arizona looking at Colorado saying they are a much better team. We're in for a ride. It was simply Colorado saying we were not prepared like they were. Yeah, I mean, you look at the NBC Sports feed, I guess, and before the game, they were showing the clip of the Dallas Stars playing soccer on the field, and Alex Radulov and and Anton Kudobin had their shirts off, and you look at them, and you're like, oh, man, these guys with these potato chip bag bodies are about to are about to beat the avalanche aren't they and you know that's kind of exactly what happened they just weren't ready for what happened and um the avalanche were just caught off guard and i think a major thing in the way that the that the stars 
were able to beat the Avalanche. A, a huge tactic that I was able to kind of notice was their play from beneath the goal line. The Stars, you know, how the Avalanche really try to create offense from the blue line, get the puck up top. Well, the Stars, whenever the puck goes up top, most of the times they're just dumping it back down low and letting their forwards get to work. And you saw that Stars really try to exploit that. I think that was something they had talked about in, in their game planning for the Avs because you saw the puck going behind the net, the Stars battling, messing around with it down there, and then spitting it out to the to the slot where it was essentially un, 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 unattended forward and it would get through a defenseman. You know, it happened to Kale McCarr. It happened to Eric Johnson. So let's get into that first goal because it did happen to Eric Johnson right there on that goal after a, a mistake from Eric Johnson and a turnover is really what caused the, the whole play there. Yeah, they... The Stars did a really good job of not really necessarily cycling it to the point. They didn't give the Avalanche's forwards a chance to, to have a breakout because they kept it down low. And if the Avalanche defensemen were able to take the puck before they can cycle it up to the forwards, due to the fact that Zadorov, Cole, etc., etc., were turning the puck over almost every time they tried to get it to the forwards, Dallas would take it right back, bring it right back beneath the circles, and just keep cycling it down low, and that's ultimately what they did. They they over they they overexerted their pressure on Eric Johnson on that first goal. They took the puck away, and then suddenly Tyler Sagan came in. He beat out Nichushkin, got right in front of the net, wide open. Ben had it right behind the net, clear as day, perfect pass. You can drop that play from a mile away. You saw it coming, and that was just the epitome of how the night went for the Avalanche. They did it almost every single goal. It was a perfect pass, a perfect shot. And you just knew every single time Dallas scored, it was one of those things where it's like, they are about to score right now. And then boom, boom, it's in the back of the net. Yeah, and on the topic of Eric Johnson, you know, we might as well get into that. You know, that's kind of a big issue going on within the Avalanche locker room right now is, is just the fact that he got pretty messed up there in that game. It, it looked painful. He tried to fight through it. But looking back all the way to the exhibition game of this restart, if you recall, I was mentioning how mentioning how he, he was looking a little slow in that game too. And then suddenly yesterday when he gets hurt and trying to play through it, you know, while I think he's already, you know, kind of lost his step, whether that's to injury or just age, I think... Eric Johnson kind of made a mistake by trying to stay in that game. I mean, to me, he kind of looked uh, reminiscent of Adam Foote towards the end of his career there with his mobility. Yep. So yeah. I appreciate the heart out of Eric Johnson, but I think he was doing more harm than good by trying to stay in that game yesterday. I mean, certainly it's hard to blame him for wanting to get back into the game. Uh, the goal, the second goal that Dallas scored, the one that they took a 2-1 to lead and they didn't relinquish the lead from then until the final buzzer sounded – that was the goal where he was hurt and he was right in the lane right there with the puck and still did not feel like he could finish the play he got up turned around and skated to the bench and then dallas scored shortly thereafter so you know he was in a lot of pain the fact that he came back to start the second period was impressive surprising and maybe not the smartest decision um but it didn't necessarily lead to any more goals it was just more of a sign of heart and will from him uh I don't think it did much else in the second period to really cause the Avalanche to be, uh, you know, to, to feel like they're down a man when he's on the ice. And then when he came out of the third period, he just sat on the bench simply to be there for his team. So it just it speaks a lot to his character for him to want to be there no matter what's happening, uh, whether he's playing or not. He wanted to be on the bench. Um, he wanted to help see his team through this difficult game. But yeah, he's he's getting old. These injuries happen quite often for him. He he wasn't hurt often during the regular season this year, but 
certainly father time is catching up to a player that's been in the NHL since he was 18. And you got to remember, he was drafted the year after Sidney Crosby. He's been around for a pretty damn long time. So it is unfortunate and it does suck because he's very important to this defensive core. Uh, but like it's been all season, it's next man up. Somebody's got to step up and Makar and Gerard are going to see a lot of minutes. He's always sacrificing his body, Eric Johnson is, and, and always, you know, given everything he can just to make the play so it's not surprising to see him try to effort the rest of the game but we're recording here immediately following the avalanche media availability where they still haven't declared who is going to step into the lineup if eric johnson is in fact out they're keeping all options open so Eric, who do you think should step into that role and, and try to fill a spot like ej's because that's a pretty big responsibility especially from a young defenseman standpoint bedner said it perfectly he said uh you know he was asked if it was going to be a veteran like barbarian Connaughton or a younger guy like timmins or byram and he said we're going to evaluate and the evaluation is based off of where and how are we going to play this new defenseman that's going to enter the lineup basically whoever comes in is not going to be slotted with sam gerard or with nikita zadorov and play the minutes eric johnson played a portion of those minutes are going to be given to gerard and mccart they're going to play a lot more because eric johnson is out and then whatever is left over from ej's regular 17 18 19 20 minutes you're going to have to give it to this next person that steps into the lineup. So what kind of role do you want that person to be in? Do you want him to be a more shutdown guy like Barbario? Do you want him to be a possible option on the power play if needed, like Kevin Connaughton, to give Gerard or Makar a breather? Do you want to give a young guy a chance to go in there and be a more mobile defenseman? I mean, personally, playing Connor Timmins might not be a bad idea. Connor Timmins can get the puck out of the zone. He can skate it out of the zone. Yes, he lacks the physical ability uh, you know, and, and the physical body and, and, and the size to play with a team like Dallas, and he certainly won't replace Johnson in that regard. But he can get the puck out of the zone, and that's something the Avalanche struggled with a lot yesterday. So to go back to you know your question, Bednar made a really good point. It's going to be based off of what we want that person to do, and then we'll take the person that best, fit, best fits the mold. So we'll learn more tomorrow. Uh, I, I've learned over these years, and I'm sure you have as well, that Bednar's not the kind of guy to take the safe option every time. So it's not as easy as let's just put Barbario in and move on. Uh, there's a lot more uh, that goes behind every decision he makes, and I'm expecting this one to be a tough one for him too. There's two things I think they really have to consider in deciding who to put in. A, who can best fill Eric Johnson's role? I mean, like you said, you don't exactly have to fit it with all the minutes and, and all the responsibility, but who can fill that void that is missing when Eric Johnson's out of the lineup? And secondly, whose style best fits what can stop the, the Dallas's offense? What, what, what's the best counter towards the Dallas's strengths and who has the, that in their defensive, I guess, repertoire? Um, and so that being said, if you were Jared Bednar, Arif, what decision do you think you would make? I would do Connor Timmins. Uh, in regards to playing a physical game, the Avalanche have plenty of forwards that do that. They have plenty of defensemen in Gerard, uh, not Gerard, that's the last guy on the list, in uh, Cole, Zadorov, and Ryan Graves. And then you obviously have Makar and Gerard, but I would give it to Connor Timmins just so that you have three smaller mobile defensemen and three bigger guys like uh, like Graves and, and Cole and, and uh, Zadorov. Damn, I keep wanting to say Gerard. So... I'd give the shot, the, the shot to Timmins. I'd let him be the guy that can get the puck out of the zone, that could skate the puck out of the zone, 
and uh, ultimately hopefully not turn it over you don't want to bring in a defenseman that's going to play a more defensively sound game and just try to cycle the puck up to the offense every single time and be prone to accidents you want somebody with the confidence to skate it out that's why McCarr and Gerard played so much yesterday they were the only guys that had the will and the confidence to skate the puck out of the zone and transition to the forwards rather than just try to throw it up the middle like Colin Zadorov did many times and turned it over I think for a guy like Connor Timmins too, the bubble city and the hub city setting would be the best place to kind of get your first playoff action, right? You're not going to yeah. have the uh, you know the atmosphere that might psych you out a little bit. So you know, I kind of like the idea of Connor Timmins and getting some some speed in there because that ultimately that's what's going to counter Dallas's attack, in my opinion, is more speed. Fight speed with speed. Yeah, and I mean, Connor Timmins is not by any means a rookie in the sense where, and yeah, he doesn't have the experience, but he's been around for a little while. He's been around for a few years. He's gone through some injuries. He's played through some hurdles in his life, but he's always been right there. He made the opening night roster this year, or you know, now 10 months ago, not because he was handed that spot. It was because he earned it. Uh, he gave the avalanche a hard time with sending him down and that's why he was there at the opening roster he went down to the AHL he's been called up many times he deserves this shot he's a lot more mature and grown and developed than somebody like a Bowen Byram um, and then obviously you can go with a safer option like Barbario and Kanaten where you know what you're gonna get but why not give a shot to a guy like Timmins who can probably grow and excel and develop more and more each game well, hopefully Eric Johnson isn't out too long, but it just wasn't looking good, not looking promising the way he was struggling to get through that game yesterday. So while we're on the topic of injuries here, let's go to the Matt Calvert and uh, just missing the game yesterday. Vlad Nemestikov filling in his role on the fourth line. I honestly wasn't that into Nemestikov being on the fourth line. Do you think that was more an issue of just kind of easing him back into him, limiting his minutes, or were they just trying to, to have him fill that Matt Calvert role down there? So I asked Jared Bednar, I'm not sure if you were on the post-game media availability yesterday, but the very last question that was asked to Bednar, I got the hand and I asked him, was Nemestikov being on the fourth line just a matter of not wanting to mess with the top three lines and what had been working? Or is there more to it? The more to it being, are we easing Nemestikov in? Is he still a little hurt, but thrusted into the lineup because Calvert is even more hurt? What is it that's causing you to play Nemestikov on the fourth line? And he simply responded with, yes, that's exactly it. So Nemestikov was on the fourth line because he didn't want to mess with the top three lines. The question that I have is, as the game went on, why was there no changes? Um, that's a question for another day. I I wrote about Valerie Nichushkin yesterday for a reason. The Avalanche are playing the Dallas Stars. Uh, Bednar straight up admitted that Nichushkin is a confidence guy, like we all know. When he is not confident, he is not good. So is this a matter, and this is kind of where I was getting at with my question, is this a matter of not bringing Nichushkin out of the top nine because you don't want to kill what's left of his confidence? Is this a matter of not sitting Nichushkin? Granted, Calvert wasn't healthy, but even if he was, is this a matter of not sitting Nichushkin because you just want him to ride out this little lull in his game and hopefully break out of it? Because Nichushkin didn't look again, look good again yesterday. So what happens now? Do you bring him out of the lineup for someone like Logan O'Connor? Do you bring him down to the fourth line? Because certainly Nemesnikov deserves to play on the top nine. So does Tyson Jost, and then Comfort, Donskoy, etc., and so on and so forth. They're not going down to the fourth line. Somebody has to. So I certainly think that that was sort of the method to his madness yesterday, was to not really kill what's left of Nichushkin's confidence, because once it's gone, it's, it's, it's gone. That's the kind of player he is. 
but I fully expect Nemesnikov to be in the top nine tomorrow. And uh, if things don't go well right off the bat, expect him in the top six. And I also look at what you said there, and part of me thinks that maybe he just didn't want to break up what the fourth line had going because he did take the second after the game yesterday to call out those middle six wingers, and maybe they were just doing bad enough on their own. He didn't want to mess up what the fourth line was doing, which was actually kind of promising. But at the end of the day, you look at those middle six wingers and pretty much every single one of them actually not pretty much every single one of them were in the minus category for plus minus now I know plus minus is an iffy stat here and there but I think yesterday it was very telling you had the top line all plus two plus three and then you had the middle six all in the minus and then you had the bottom line um I think Matt Nieto and Belmare were were even and Nemestikov was was a plus one or something something along those lines. But you really saw the discrepancy in how bad that middle six was playing, and you could see it throughout. I mean, we were talking about how the Stars liked to get that puck pinned below the goal line. Well, a lot of that was against those middle six guys. They were the ones getting hemmed in, and those were, were the guys that were unable to break it out. So I think calling them out was a good thing, a necessary thing, because in all honesty, those six guys really needed to wake up from a defensive standpoint yesterday. Absolutely. And the thing is, the talk of the avalanche season all year long has been, you guys suddenly have this depth. You don't have to rely on Nieto, Calvert, and what used to be Soderberg and is now Belmar. You don't have to rely only on McKinnon, Landeskog, and Rantanen. You have these guys in the middle six that are going to provide that offense for you. They did absolutely none of that yesterday. Nazem Kadri had an assist on the McKinnon goal, but that's about it. Uh, nobody from that middle six really showed up. That includes Comfort, that includes Kadri. They were getting destroyed at the face-off circle. Uh, Burakovsky, Nachushkin, Jost, and Donskoy, those are your middle four, your middle six, four wingers. And uh, not, not a single one of them had a good play. Not a single one of them was in, on, was in on the action in a positive light pretty much the entire game. And that has to change. You know that they're capable. You know, like I said last game, that JT Comfort is built for playoff hockey. You know that Burakovsky can score goals and we're kind of waiting for him to sort of break out in the playoffs like he was in the regular season. And you know that Nichushkin and Donskoy can provide depth and offense for you. It's just a matter of getting them to do it on a nightly basis. So by calling out the middle six wingers, Bednar was absolutely right. They were not up to par with the standard that the Avalanche have for those guys in the way that they're expected to play. And maybe that is why Nemestikov stayed at the bottom. Maybe it was a sign of, you know what, Belmar and Nieto are being a lot more productive today than, for example, a Kadri and Donskoy. So let's keep them on that line to at least give them a shot to continue to be productive for us. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I, I Like I said, I expect Nemestikov to come off that line. But at the same time, Bednar did mention that he doesn't want to mess with the lineup too much. They've earned his trust to get it, to get it another go, but something's going to change. Right, that was kind of my thought. And just as important as their lack of production on the offensive side, I think a lot of the goals were because of defensive mistakes. Yes. Um, you know, which I, I'm not too worried about all, in all honesty. That's hockey. Hockey is a game of mistakes and the other team taking advantage and capitalizing on those mistakes. So I think it was a bad day. It's it's all fixable. You know, you'd like to keep those mistakes on the defensive end to a minimum. You'd like you know, guys like Burakovsky to maybe be a little bit sharper on the defensive side. But again, it's fixable stuff. I don't think it's anything that needs to be dwelled on. And I think it's it's more of just a mental thing than an ability thing. Absolutely. And the thing is, right now you're playing the Dallas Stars. The Dallas Stars are buzzing. They were down 2-1 to one in that series against Calgary. They won three straight. They scored five and seven goals in the last two games. They came out in game one against the Avalanche. They put up another five. 
they look good right now. That's just the reality is the Dallas Stars look good. So while the Avalanche, obviously these things are fixable, you kind of want to get to that really quickly. Because if you let this drag on for another game, suddenly uh, Dallas is up to a five-game winning streak and a two-to-nothing series lead. You don't want to be stuck in a hole like that. A two-nothing series lead is not by any means something that is a... Uh, uh, a, a loss you can come back from a two to nothing series lead the abs have done it in the past and hell they've had it done to them in the past but you don't want to fall into a rut like that against a team that's already feeling it and is already riding this momentum in this wave and 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 you know could put a real dagger in game three if they take a two to nothing lead well and that's kind of what we touched on gave dallas the advantage is the fact that they had been playing a more playoff caliber hockey for a lot longer and they went down 0-2 in their first round so they were fighting and being desperate and playing that playoff style you know winner go home for quite some time now meanwhile the avalanche were kind of coasting so that's a big difference and even if the avalanche were to go down 0-2 like you're saying that's still not the end of it they could still come back ride the momentum and kind of do exactly what the stars are so losing game one sucks but it's not the end of the world but while we're on the topic of injuries, obviously got to talk about the biggest injury that happened, in my opinion, yesterday. Right as the Avalanche are at a 3-1 game late in the third period, Grubauer goes down. It looks like, um, you know, he tweaked his injury there. It didn't look like a new injury. It looked more like a re-aggravation to an injury. It was really awkward. I mean, nothing special about it. He just went down and, and just kind of flared his leg out to try to make the save and look like he, he tweaked something. Yeah, just to uh, uh, fix a little mistake that you made there, it was in the middle of the second period, so it was about halfway through the game, not late in the third. What did I say first? You said late in the third. <laughs> oh. You're just trying to get through the game, and I don't, I, don't, I don't blame you. It was a game where you don't really want to spend too much time talking about it. Uh, but yeah, it was obviously halfway through the game when Pavel Francouz came in and he faced 20 shots and surrendered two goals, so nothing crazy bad, uh, nothing crazy good. Just, you know, he, he came in and did his job. Grubauer, it's, it's not the type of injury you want to see. And the reason why that is, is because if it was a play where somebody crashed in or is an awkward play, you can kind of say, yes, that's, that, that sucks, but it's, a, it's an understandable reason for why he got hurt. But when a goalie is making what looks like a routine save by stretching out his right leg to try to get to a puck, and the puck ultimately was wide, so he maybe stretched a little too much and overdid it, he just stayed down on the ice. He was untouched. It was a harmful play. It was a very routine play. And for something like that to re-aggravate something or to pull something is a little worrisome for himself and his career moving forward and for Avalanche fans and for Avalanche faithful that might think, hey, what's wrong with our goalie? He's a lot more injury prone than we thought. I remember when Varlamov was here. Every time Varlamov got hurt, people just sat there and screamed and hummed and hawed about how He's injury prone. Well, it's like, no, every time Varlamov got hurt, it was an understandable injury. In 2018, when he got hurt late in that playoff run before Bernier took over, I don't remember the player, but somebody on Chicago literally ran him over. That's not what an injury prone goalie, that's not how an injury prone goalie gets hurt. That's how any athlete gets hurt. The way Grubauer went down yesterday is worrisome because that's how an injury prone goaltender gets hurt. He makes a routine movement and it leads to him staying down on the ice and writhing in pain. It was it was hard to watch. It was uh, very, like, there was a lot of curiosity in figuring out why and how that happened, uh, but it doesn't look good. I don't know how serious it is, but in terms of him getting hurt by such a simple mo movement like that, and for somebody who has had knee injuries in the past, it's not a good sign. 
modern goaltending today is filled with a ton of just unnatural positions, right? And yeah. if you tweak something, it's hard to fully build that back to 100% just because of the positions and the, the leg movements that you have to do as a goaltender. It really ages you quickly. Once you get hurt, those injuries kind of, you know, take a longer and longer time to heal. And three major I would say muscles or joints, whatever you want to call them for the goaltender that need to be in tip top shape. And that's the hips, the groins and the knees. And it looks, yep. it looks like, you know, he definitely hurt at least one of those. And that's one of the main things that you need as a goaltender. So things just aren't looking good. I think for Philip Grubauer and maybe the rest of the playoffs here. Yeah. And I mean, he wasn't able to apply any pressure to his left leg, which is kind of where, if you want to break down the play, he leaned to the right, he went down, he stretched out his right leg to reach a puck, but it was his left leg that he was unable to apply pressure for. So what was going on in the groin? What was going on in his hips? What was going on in his knees that caused his left leg to overextend or his right leg overextending causing pain in his left leg? It's it's confusing. It's hard to really gauge exactly what happened, but those movements and the reason and, and the fact that it's hard for a goaltender to really work through injuries these days, that's why teams have two capable goalies now hell you're getting to the point where you might need three because now suddenly michael hutchinson's your backup and look at dallas ben bishop's only played two games since the restart hudobin's now their starter who's a very capable backup similar to francis who can take over the crease but now they have a young jake ottinger sitting there as on the bench as a third goalie so what happens if another injury happens in the series you're either going to have jake ottinger or michael hutchinson in, in goal on either side and those are both big red flags so that's the way it goes nowadays. Um, Tukarask obviously left Boston. They have a very capable backup in Yaroslav Halak. Uh, so like Halak and like Hudobin, I believe Francis can do the job, but it is still very worrisome knowing that if Francis goes down, like we've seen earlier this year when both goalies are injured, the Avalanche don't really have much else to cover for them. Yeah, you and this whole situation has given me flashbacks of Andrew Hammond in the Nashville playoffs when both Varley and Bernier went down. They had to go don't, with don't even three. Don't even go so far. Adam Werner came in in that Winnipeg game and put up a shutout, and it was kind of like it's this crazy magical night. The next day he faced Connor McDavid, and McDavid had six points before the guy that was buying popcorn pregame even got to his seat. So... It could it could fall you know it could, it could crash and burn on you really quickly. But at the same time, look, we're talking about Pavel Francouz. The pause was March 12th. The last Avalanche game was March 11. Philip Grubauer got hurt February 15th at Air Force, which which what seemed like years ago. Francouz played every single game from that point up until the pause, except for the game in Detroit that they gave to Hutchinson because that's a gimme. You're playing the worst team in the league, and Hutchinson won it two to one. So. Francis can do this. He played a lot of back-to-backs. He went on that California trip and played a back-to-back. He was winning a lot of games. The Avs were 7-2-1 before the break. I have faith that Francis can do this. But you just want to pray to the hockey gods that he doesn't go down with an injury while Grubauer is out. Absolutely. There was a little moment there yesterday where he was checking out his finger. Yeah. And you're like, oh, please, yep. no, don't be hurt. But, yeah, I absolutely think he's capable. I think he looked good when he stepped in yesterday. He did, yeah. He, he looked great. I mean, we're not even talking about the fact that Grubauer surrendered three goals on seven shots. He was not having a night. Right. I think the real only moment of fear that you had with Pavel Francouz was there at the very end of the second period where Dallas actually ended up scoring, but luckily it was after the buzzer. Um, kind of got away with one there. Yeah. But, yeah, I think he's more than capable, and I think that's kind of, you know, you see it all the time. That's the type of change that might just light the fire under the team. You know, now they have maybe a little bit more of a defensive responsibility because – 
maybe Franzuz is a little bit more shaky than Grubauer. I'm saying I'm fully confident in fruit in Franzuz, but you'd rather have Grubauer at the end of the day. So I think that's going to light a spark under the defensive structure of the team, the defensive will, and I think you know it could just be what they needed to to light that fire under. Yeah, and I mean. What I like about this team is they've responded very well to injuries this season. So when you have a game where somebody goes down and it's hard to get through that game, the very next game they usually come out and play well. They've done a good job at that, and I and I applaud them for it. You know, aside from losing maybe McKinnon, Rantanen, and Makar all at once, like they had right before the pause, I think they can work through injuries. You just don't want to see a lot of guys go down at once. But when it's a depth guy like a Calvert, when it's one of your two capable goalies like Grubauer, when it's one of your your sixth defensemen like Eric Johnson, and his name is not Kale McCarr, this team can rebound. They're going to light a spark under them. They don't feel good about how they play. They're embarrassed. They, they feel embarrassed. They know that they should be embarrassed and that people are judging them based off that performance. It was the only game on a Saturday night. The entire NHL world watched that game. That mixed with the injuries, mixed with the expectation, mixed with just how bad they feel after that game, they're going to come out strong. And, and the great part is they had this terrible performance and I think this is kind of lost on a lot of people and I'm going to be just a little bit glass half full for the first time this podcast they had a terrible performance they had no business being in that game and at no point did you feel like they were actually going to win but despite all of that they entered the third period down four to three and after Grubauer got hurt until the end of the, the final buzzer in the second period, they outscored Dallas 2-1. to one. So they went into that third period knowing that we have played a terrible game, but one goal makes a difference. That one goal ended up coming from Dallas because Nikita Zadorov decided to play the man instead of the puck. You know, we don't need to get too far into that. It's been spoken about all over NBC and by every journalist at this point, but they still entered the third period down one goal. They still had a shot. So now you know if the Avalanche put together the type of performance that they can play, they can blow this team out of the water like we all expected them to before the game one. I'm with you. I think there was some promise and something good to be taken out of, and that's exactly that, that they kept fighting throughout. I mean, I think even when it was 1-1 after Nathan McKinnon scored that goal, there was a second there where I was like, all right, they've got this. They're going to they're gonna overcome that, that first goal deficit. But no, it was 3-1, they made it 3-2. It was 4-2, they made it 4-3. You know, they never could minimize that lead, but they kept fighting till the end. And I think that, that the offense did show some promise in you know showing that urgency when they needed it most, despite not being able to do much in the third period there. But, um, you know, it's going to be a completely different mindset from the last series. Again, when they lost that game against the Coyotes, they got pissed off. They came out flying and steamrolled the Coyotes. Well, this is going to be a much different situation. They're probably going to come out flying, but Dallas is a good team, much better than Arizona. They're going to be confident. They're going to be feeling good about themselves and that what they did last game worked. So it's going to be an intense game, and it's going to be another fun one, and it's going to be another one filled with post-whistle scrums and guys getting each other's faces because the intensity's picking up, and I think the Avalanche are feeling the heat now for the first time in a long time. And the funny thing is they, they've sort of been in, in, in a pattern since entering the pause where it's win two games, lose the third, win the next two, lose, win the next two, lose. And that brings them to a 6-2-1 and one or a 6-3 and three record. What that says to me is not it's just a pattern. It says to me that they respond well after losses. They did it in game five 
against Arizona. They did it in game one against Arizona after losing that game to Vegas in overtime, and they can do it here again in game two. The other thing to mention, and this is kind of a little bit of a nerdy statistic that I picked up on today, winning game one in the first round and the second round, the Avalanche have not done that in 20 years. And 19 years ago, they won a Stanley Cup. They've only done it twice. They didn't do it in 96. They didn't do it in 98. They didn't do it in 2001 or in 99. They did it in 97 and in 2000. So in the entire history of this team, considering how many cups they had or or how many chances at the cup they had and cracks at the can and making it to the conference finals that they had in the early 2000s and in the late 90s, they've only done it twice where they've had a 1-0 series lead in each of the first two rounds. What that says to me is good teams respond. In 1996, when the Avalanche made it to the second round, they went down one nothing. I think it was against the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm pretty sure that was the Jeremy Roenick series. The the I didn't hear him. I had two cups in my ear series. Chicago took game one, and I believe it was that Jeremy Roenick game. Colorado answered back and won that series. In 2001, we remember that very famous series against the Los Angeles Kings. Colorado lost game one before winning the next three before the Kings forced game seven. But it's always an, an opportunity for you, the good teams to respond, and, and this is their chance. That's a fun little fact. I like that stat. And, you know, just a sign that it's not time to panic yet. While it felt like it was an ugly loss and it almost felt like, oh, no, these playoffs are over. It's just one game, and they still have plenty of time to rebound. They just got brought down a notch, right? They, they can't rely so much on the fact that they're just a good team with a lot of skill. They got to get back to relying on hard work and effort. And sometimes you just need a little bit of a wake-up call, and that hopefully is the way they respond to this uh, once they get back on the ice tomorrow. Yeah, and that's what you want from a good team. You want that good team to be able to say, we, we, we see your performance, we see what you guys did to us in the first game, but we're going to turn it around and play our game. That's the kind of process, the, the, the problem that they had, they had, and I think it was Gabe Landeskog, don't quote me on that, that said, we didn't really go out there and play our game. We waited for them to play their game and we reacted to it. It was at the Landeskog or McKinnon that said that, but it's exactly the point. The Avalanche weren't able to impose their will because they were always chasing and they were always playing this Dallas Stars style of hockey that, quite honestly, being the Dallas Stars, the Stars can do it better than the Avalanche. And what's a good story without a little bit of a setback or, you know, every movie and any good show, the main character goes through something that, that just a little bit of adversity. So here it is. And, uh, you know, it'll just make it that much sweeter if and when they do get on to the next round. Um, but, you know, that's all I really wanted to cover on that game. Again, this wasn't meant to happen, this podcast, but there was so much to talk about in that game one. We felt that we had to come out here and do it. So instead of wrapping up the game, the podcast like we normally would with our three stars and our social media moment and, of course, our new favorite, our fan highlight of the week, I just wanted to highlight this one thing, and maybe we'll just give it one star to, the, to this guy, and this is Mark andre Fleury. I was having a conversation with my buddy, shout out Coach Schley, and he was just making the point of how nice and refreshing it is to see a guy with such class. Of course, after his agent came out and posted the picture of a DeBoer sword stabbing him right in the back, Mark andre Fleury just comes out and handles it with nothing but class. And, you know, in today's NHL, when we've got guys like Tony D'Angelo and Mike Milbury really making noise for the, uh, for the wrong reasons. It's, it's good to see a guy like Marc-Andre Fleury still, you know, holding a good name for hockey players and, and just hockey as a whole globally. He's a great guy. He's a great teammate. He's a great professional. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with Alan Walsh did and the timing of when he did it. But at the same time, 
I don't pin that on Flurry. Uh, I did have a little bit of a question mark yesterday about, you know, if Flurry really doesn't want this to be down, maybe he would have contacted Alan Walsh a little bit earlier. So he maybe said, let's let's keep it up just a little bit longer so the message could come out. But at the yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, I don't blame him for doing that either. But it's not something you pin on Flurry. Flurry's been an exceptional teammate and just an exceptional character, man. Remember when that HBO series first came out uh, between the Penguins and the Capitals? It was uh, back in 2011. He was probably the funniest and coolest guy. To this day, my buddies and I and my and my brother, we still laugh and we joke and we always watch it. And if you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. When Marc-Andre Fleury was interviewed after the 2009 Cup Final game against the Red Wings. He went down and made that last second save on Mark, on uh, Nicholas Lidstrom, of all guys. They won the Cup. And then in the ensuing moments, he was uh, interviewed by Scott Oak of CBC. Number one, he sounded like Terrence and Phillips from South Park. It was just hilarious because he's from that part of Canada. And the second part is Scott Oak asked him, how did you feel that last second when you were diving and you look to your right and you see Nicholas from about to take a shot that could tie the game? And Marc-Andre Fleury goes, I said, oh shit, and I just went for the save. So he's he's just, he's a funny guy. He's a great guy. He's He turned Vegas into what they are today because of his leadership and because of who he was as a character and as a professional and as an icon. So all the power to him. Uh, I love Marc-Andre Fleury. I don't know if he's going to be in Vegas for long. But I do know that teams like Calgary, teams like Edmonton, there's many more out there need a goalie. And uh, he's going to have a third chance to take over the crease for another team after Pittsburgh and Vegas. Oh, man, he'd be fun to see in Edmonton. But I I hate to see what's going on to him in Vegas. I think, you know, especially with the kind of playoff magic that he tends to have, it's kind of a crime to be cutting his minutes so short in this playoff series but you know I'm not the coach and I'm not paid any money to make decisions like that so I'll leave that to those guys but yeah I wanted to point that out real real quick about Marc-Andre Fleury just still giving a good name to hockey and of course there's no Canada like French Canada yeah and uh you know I just want to make one last point based off of that you mentioned earlier how what's you know what's a playoff run without a little bit of adversity well Marc-Andre Fleury's got experience with that 2008 he played his ass off and they still lost to the Red Wings. 2009, he didn't play as strong, but he still played his ass off to win that cup. 2011, he 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 was beat by Tampa Bay in the first round. Crosby and Malkin were both hurt. A few years later, suddenly Jeff Zatkoff is starting games and then Matt Murray is taking over. And then in 2017, the second of the two back-to-back cups, Flurry gets you through the first two rounds. Well, almost. He gets you seven of eight wins through the first two rounds. Suddenly, they turn back to Matt Murray. Uh, very short leash on Marc-Andre Fleury, and Murray goes the rest of the way. He came back with Vegas. He made it to the cup final. He lost to the Capitals. He's He's been there before. He's seen the adversity, and uh, that's something the Avalanche can learn a lot from. Philip Grubauer going down is not something that they're the only ones that are experiencing. I mean, Dallas doesn't have Ben Bishop. Boston had their goalie quit on them, and I mean that in the nicest, most respectful way possible. He said, I can't do this. I'm going home, and he has the right to do that, and he's not there. Look back at the Avalanche's Cup wins. In 2001, they had that Game 7 against Los Angeles. Peter Forsberg had his spleen removed and missed the rest of the playoffs. Uh, They were down 3-2 to the New Jersey Devils, and they had to shut him out in Game 6, and Patrick Waugh had to literally stand on that guy's friggin' head just to get them to a game seven these things happen st louis yesterday in order or last year in order to get through the second round they had to beat these very same dallas stars in game seven second overtime and they were trailing the series three to two and had to force a game seven before winning that second overtime game seven game 
this is what it means to make a long playoff run. You're never going to breeze through the playoffs unless you're the eight-seeded LA Kings eight years ago. Not many teams breeze through the playoffs the way that you expect it to happen. So things like this will happen. And this isn't the first time the Avalanche are going to face adversity. If they make it through this round, there'll be plenty of adversity waiting for them in round three and round four, hopefully. Right. It's not over. The sky is not falling and it's not even close to time to push the panic button. If there's one thing we need to learn from history and Smash Mouth that sometimes you get knocked down, but you get up again (laughs) and then you keep going, right? So Yeah, and... Before you wrap it up, I just want to mention stick taps to Nathan McKinnon. Hell of a game. He is the best player in the NHL right now, and I will friggin' argue that to my grave. That in this moment, this year, McKinnon is the best NHL player that there is. And, uh, you know, if he plays the way he played yesterday and the rest of the team picks it up even 50% to where they should be, the Avalanche are going to breeze through the series and the Western Conference. Right. Take it away, JJ. Right. While the loss is something that, you know, hurts us all, seeing that goal that he scored to make it 1-1, you know, I think in a win we'd be talking about that for weeks. That was an amazing So beautiful. But, yeah, other than that, thanks for joining us here on this quick little wrap-up of Game 1. We'll be back later on in the series to talk more Stars Avalanche hockey. In the meantime, hit us up on Twitter. We love to talk to you guys and uh, get, get a little bit back and forth going. So, at run right Arif for Arif at JJ of the year. And before you uh, close us out, uh, I do want to send my appreciation to everybody that has been interacting with us on Twitter because these last couple weeks, you guys have picked it way the heck up. We're having lots of discussions. I love it. I appreciate it. Keep it going. And obviously for everybody, go abs. Absolutely. And don't forget to download DraftKings Sportsbook while we're at it. Got to give them a shout out. America's top-rated sportsbook app. So, again, for Arif, I'm JJ. Hockey is for everyone, and we out you.